Graminated. Gram, graminated. Graminated. Uh, you know what? Let's go with graminated. Hey, Rockers. Welcome back to Extra Credit, the Rocky podcast. I'm your co-host, Seth Hinckley, sitting here with the Mike Oldfield to my Mike Oldfield, <laughs> the dean of Rocky himself, Mr. Matt Black. Seth, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? I'm blown away by modern technology. I'm sitting here, and it's like you're here in the room with me. I can see you, and, and I can hear you, and... Oh, wait, you are here in the room I am with me. here in the room. Hey, the reunion tour is here. <laughs> Welcome back to Paris, Seth. Glad you could drop in and uh, record a podcast. Yeah, it was a quick trip. Got to play with the band. That was my bass player's 60th birthday. Happy birthday, John. Glad to hang out and party with Happy you guys birthday, John. on Saturday. That was a lot of fun. And while I was in town, might as well get an extra podcast. Might as well yeah. record a podcast. <laughs> we are feeling our way through this remote podcasting experience. I have to say, I do not feel as comfortable on whatever where you Google Meet or whatever, you know, on, on screen and remotely yeah. as I do here in the room with you. So I'm glad we get to, but we'll get there, folks. Don't, you know, our long, long-time listeners, don't don't worry. We'll, we'll work it out. We'll work it we'll out. We'll get comfortable. All right, man. What are you wearing? I'm wearing my Nirvana t-shirt with the Dead Happy Face logo. The Dead Happy what, Face logo. <laughs> I don't know what it's supposed to officially called. <laughs> what are you wearing? Uh, I'm wearing my Dropkick Murphy shirt nice. from, uh, I forget what the year was while we were living in Paris, but we went to see them on their European tour. Cool. What okay, are we doing? We're doing songs with pre-rock origins. Oh, okay. So, you know, oh, how a, far how far back are we going to go? That's the question. As a history major, I'm I was happy to do this one. You know? <laughs> some of these songs have some deep roots yeah so. gotta go with the criteria i had a bunch i had a few i had a little so i'm probably gonna be a little more wishy-washy than you that's are. all that's all good that's how we do things you know why, yeah. why plan it in advance um <laughs> i figured i had to set myself a hard cutoff so i chose the year 1954 which was the first year that the term rock and roll was in common usage okay so all of my songs originated from 1954 or earlier and okay. I also, I have some more. Should I continue? I sure. Have, uh, I tried to stay away from covers or rock songs that came from a blues or folk or country origin that still sounded like blues, folk, or country. I was looking for things okay. that were, I guess, more transformed into like basically something that a rock listener would not recog- would not realize was an earlier song necessarily. Okay. Something that made it rock and roll. I also stayed away from, you know, there are covers out there like the Sex Pistols covering My Way or Dead Kennedys covering Viva Las Vegas, where clearly... It's a punk band or some band with a statement to make, and they're just covering it to show how different they are. It didn't really feel like it was a musical choice. It felt more like a personal or or an identity or a political choice. And finally, I stayed away from songs that just basically lifted a chord progression. So there are a lot of classical chord progressions like Packlebell's Canon that show up in rock songs or um, Greensleeve, something like that where a band is taking a chord progression and making a song out of it, but it's not really, it may have some of that earlier music's DNA in it, but it's not a song with origins from the pre-rock and roll era. And I gave bonus points if most people probably think that the rock song is the original version of the song. Dude. I thought I thought way too much about <laughs> you this. You thought this. way too hard about this. Yeah, yeah. No, I, hey, listen, that's fun for me. So I had very minimal criteria <laughs> compared to yours. Mine had to have at least some musical or lyrical origins that were pre-rock era. Bonus points if they had both. And that was about it. Good enough. So, it's like good cop, bad cop. Kind of, It's like Tubbs yeah. and Crockett. I actually don't. I never watched that show. I have no idea how they were different. <laughs> I don't know if they ever did good cop, bad cop, because yeah. they were always running through banging. Well, I'll be bad cop. 
You'll be back up. I'll be okay. back up. Got an over under for me? Yeah. I'm setting it at 1.5. Yeah. And I, I think I'm going to take the under. This happens to me every time. My, Are you going to take my, the over? My heart says over, but my head says under. I'm going to go with the over. I'm going to lose, but frankly, what I'm going to lose is nothing except shame. So I'll go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, follow your heart. That's well, what I'm, you that's should what do. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. All right. Who's going first? I have no idea. Why don't you go first? I will. And I'll go after you so I can be ready for the ding, ding, ding if we have it. (laughs) Okay. My first song, first of all, I have no business calling this a popular song. Probably no one's ever heard of it. I've never met anyone else who's ever heard of it. So it does fit my criteria, but it's not a well-known rock song. However, it's my excuse to introduce our listeners to the giddy delight that is Wolfpack. Okay. One of my favorite bands. Yeah. And uh, Wolfpack has a fairly deep cut, even for Wolfpack, which is not a well-known band, called Point Sienna. And what it is, is the four members of the band sitting on a couch, all singing into talk boxes with <laughs> Theo Katzman, who's the drummer and sometimes the guitar player, playing bass. I don't know why when you have Joe Darvet in your band, you have anyone else play bass, but he does a beautiful job of it, actually. Maybe they were bored. And a drum machine. That's all. <laughs> That's, yeah. that's all the, the whole song. And the four guys are singing close harmony of the song Point Sienna, which originated in 1936. It was composed by Nat Simon. The origins of the song are in dispute. Nat Simon claimed the song came to him while he was eating at a famous Italian restaurant in the theater district in Manhattan, and he wrote the draft of the song on the tablecloth and, with permission of the owner, took the tablecloth home with him. Nah. And then the lyrics were written in Spanish and in English by, he's got to put my glasses on, Buddy Bernier, who cited as his inspiration a poem postcard of a royal poinciana tree that he'd recently received from Florida. However, the song bears a close resemblance to a Cuban folk song called Song of the Tree, or excuse my Spanish, La Cancion del Arbol. It seems too coincidental to be true, so maybe it was a subconscious repetition. It became a jazz standard. It was recorded by Glenn Miller, Bing Crosby. It hardly qualifies as a well-known rock song, but I would encourage you all, not just to listen to the song, but to go watch the video, which is so goofy. These guys are having such a good time just playing with music. And, you know, it's a rock song in the sense that it's got drums and electric bass. I mean, there's nothing else that makes it a rock song. The lyrics are not too meaningful. It's it's about a tree. (laughs) If you don't know Wolfpack, go check them out. All their songs have this element of whimsy in them. They're so much fun, and they're so musical. Other than this song, which is not a good representation of their music, go listen to their Madison Square Garden concert, which is just mind-blowing. Cool. Number five, Poinciana by Wolfpack, which I did not expect a repetition from you on. So. No. no <laughs> Have no. you heard of it? No. Didn't think so. Totally haven't. What's I'm your not, number? I'm uh, not that into Wolf, uh, Wolfpack. Yeah. It's, it starts with a V, right? It starts with a V. Yeah. The, 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 the band members wanted the sound of two old guys at a diner trying to say Wolfpack. Wolfpack! <laughs> There was a wolf pick. <laughs> that, that was what they were going the for. The guys in the barber shop and coming to America. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. What's your number five? My number five is Amazing Grace by the Dropkick Murphys, which nice. is the reason why I'm wearing the shirt. Sure. It's a classic gospel song that was written by a guy named John Newton in the 1770s. He didn't write the music to it, but he wrote the words to it. He was a slave trader in the 1740s and 1750s and had a conversion experience and eventually became a priest in the Church of England and wrote the words to Amazing Grace to support a New Year's Day sermon that he gave in 1773. In the United States, Amazing Grace became a popular song used by Baptists and Methodist preachers as part of their evangelizing, especially in the American South. 
It's been associated with more than 20 different melodies over time. In 1835, I think, the American composer William Walker set it to the tune known as New Britain, which is the version that is most frequently sung today. And then, I didn't know this until I did the research on this, one of the verses that's currently used today in most of the versions was a verse that first was recorded in Harriet Beecher Stowe's immensely influential anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. That verse, which was not written by Newton, had been passed down orally by African-American communities for almost 50 years at the time. And it's my favorite verse in the whole song. It's, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Now, there's allegedly over a thousand recordings of this song. Tons of famous people have recorded it. Mahalia Jackson's 1947 recording got tons and tons of radio airplay, even through the 50s and the 60s. Arlo Guthrie performed it at Woodstock. And then Judy Collins recorded her version that was a cappella, if I remember correctly. And it went to number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100. And it's (laughs) on her 1970 album, Wales and Nightingales. Now, the reason Judy's version is really influential is two years later, the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, the senior Scottish regiment of the British Army, recorded an instrumental version featuring a bagpipe soloist and accompanied by the pipe and drum band. And their tempo of the arrangement was slowed to allow for the bagpipes, but it was completely based on Judy Collins' Hmm. version that had been released in 70. That record peaked at number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S. But the reason it's on this list is the Dropkick Murphys version. They recorded an instrumental version with none of the words. That's on their album, The Gang's All Here. But the one that I love is the one on live on St. Patrick's Day, because these guys are an Irish band from Boston. (laughs) And uh, allegedly, they have a concert in Boston every St. Patrick's Day week, and they always start with this song. And on the recording, you can hear the crowd sing the chorus of the song with the solo bagpiper that starts it. And then they just drop into this amazing thrash jam of Amazing Grace. Cool. A song that's got some really, really pre-rock origins two centuries before that. If you're curious about what Amazing Grace can sound like by a thrash punk band, the Dropkick Murphys will help you out with that. Awesome. All right, man. What's your number four? I might or might not be hearing some bells. We'll see. Okay. My number four is Where Did You Sleep Last Night by Nirvana from NPV Unplugged. Nope. No. Dang it. I really thought so. All right. Uh, (laughs) This song, this is an Appalachian folk song that goes back to at least the 1870s. (laughs) There are a number of different versions. There are a number of different titles. It's also known as In the Pines in some versions. It's been played many times by bluegrass bands, blues bands, country bands. Probably the most famous version before Nirvana is Lead Belly. And Lead Belly recorded several versions of it in the 40s and 50s. He learned it from a 1917 recording by Cecil Sharp. This was the last song played by Nirvana in the famous MTV Unplugged concert that they did in, I guess it would have been the 90s. I don't remember, obviously. Early 90s? If it was Nirvana, it was the 90s. Um, Yeah, 1993. Never mind. It's right here on my page. Yeah. Um, Never mind. Nice pun. (laughs) But I'm drummer. (laughs) Rimshot. Kurt Cobain actually said on the show, on the in the concert, that Lead Belly was his favorite performer. And, wow. Uh, yeah. And Neil Young said that Cobain's version was, and I'm quoting, unearthly like a werewolf. Unbelievable. Andrew Wallace Chamings of The Atlantic, I admit, 
may or may not be pronouncing his name right, wrote that it ranks among the greatest single rock performances of all time. Uh, it was the last song Nirvana played in the show. The producer wanted them to do an encore, and Kurt said, no, we can't top that last song. And yeah. that was it. The song is... It's just a wail of psychic pain, which Kurt Cobain was pretty good at. <laughs> yeah. Lead, Lead Belly's version is nowhere near as dark, but Kurt found something else. In, well, I should say Nirvana, but you know, it's it's Kurt. Let's be honest. Kurt found something else in that song to express from himself, and that's what these folk songs can do. These folk songs are like I don't want to say Rorschach tests. They're like ciphers. You can make the or not cipher. That's not the word I'm looking for. What's the word I'm looking for? Like something you can put any meaning into. Kurt Cobain a vessel. Found, uh, exactly. It was a vessel. Kurt Cobain found something from in his soul to put into the song, and it's a very, yeah. very powerful song. Yeah. And most people probably don't realize that that is not a Nirvana song. That's my number four. Where Did You Sleep Last Night or In the Pines by Nirvana from the Unplugged performance. Cool. What do you got for your number four? This is hearkening back to you're the Mike Oldfield to my Mike Oldfield. I was Oldfield. wondering about that, yeah. It's Tubular Bells. I didn't know that had pre-rock origins. So Tell me. Tubular Bells is a prog rock insane album. It's got two songs on it, Tubular Bells Part 1 and mm-hmm. Tubular Bells Part 2. And if you know anything about the record, it put out in the 70s. And so the first song's on the entire first side. And the second song is the entire second side. But part one, Oldfield said that the intro and pretty much the bass to the song is an upside down version of Bach's Toccata in Fugue in D minor. It's not literally upside down, but mm-hmm. it's definitely what inspired him to write the song. Yeah. Now, if you look it up on YouTube, he actually says, yeah, it's, it's Toccata in Fugue upside down. And he plays Toccata in and fugue for a little bit and then he turns around and plays tubular bells and the announcer was like oh wow yeah it does sound like it's turned upside down they're both in eighth notes they're both in a minor key and punctuated by the fifth note in the scale the other main difference besides the differing note pattern is that oldfield's version drops a beat out of the regular 16 8 time signature and when he was recording it he was having trouble playing it in 15 8 so his producer set up a metronome in another room mic'd it up piped wow. it into his headphones wow. so he played it with an early version an early of, click track an yeah, early exactly. version of a click track <laughs> yeah so whoever that engineer was 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 thinking outside the box the song slash album got a real boost after the initial part of the first song was used in the movie The Exorcist <laughs> Oldfield later attributed the music's successful use on the soundtrack to its unusual 15-8 opening time signature mm. and although the introduction only features briefly in two scenes in the movie it has become the track that's most closely associated oh, with for the sure, film. for sure. Yeah. Everybody knows it as that Exorcist soundtrack yeah, thing. Yeah, everybody's like, oh, that's the song from The Exorcist. <laughs> right. But really, it's Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. The other <laughs> really cool facts about this recording are it was the very first album put out by Virgin Records. Wow. The first one. This was wow, the first thing that. that they put out in it was early 70s. And because of its success, Richard Branson, the guy who owns all those Virgin companies now, said in 2013, I never thought that the word tubular bells was going to play such an important part in our lives virgin going into space most likely wouldn't have existed if we hadn't hired that particular instrument now the reason he said hired that instrument was oldfield got to the studio and he saw some tubular bells in there that had been left by a previous artist and he asked hey can those hang around because i might want to use them 
Well, that's really cool. That's how the, the rest history. is history, as they say. Yeah. Uh, and Branson has named two planes in his airline group. One, I think, is in Virgin Atlantic, and the other, I think, is in Virgin America. Mm-hmm. The Tubular Bell, B E L L E, in homage to the album. Nice. I've always liked Tubular Bells, and the classical connection was great, but the story about Virgin was, I couldn't, awesome. let, that, I couldn't let that one go. That's awesome. So that's my number four. All right, what's All right. yours? I might hear bells on this one too. Okay. Not tubular bells though. Not tubular <laughs> bells, yeah. My number three song. Um, oh, that's right, in, number three. Number three Sorry. song makes it in Just Under the Wire. It was written in 1953 as a novelty song by Nat Simon and Jimmy Kennedy, same Nat Simon who wrote Poinciana. It's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Oh. Why they might be giants. Is How did I not list? have that on my list? Damn, I definitely thought that was one of our, our ding dings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was ri- the original song was written on the fiftieth, uh, the five hundredth anniversary of the fall of Constantinople wow. to the Ottomans, and it was originally recorded by Canadian vocal quartet the Four Lads in nineteen fifty three. Okay. And believe it or not, I didn't know this term existed in 1953. It was a response song <laughs> to a song called C-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-N-O-P-L-E, recorded in 1928 by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. And wow. I went back and listened to it, and yep, it's just what you think. <laughs> Go back and check it out. They Might Be Giants released it in their on their 1990 album, Flood. Yeah. Um, everybody knows, well, not everybody, I mean, it's a popular song. I love song. that version. Yeah, it's so much fun. I wouldn't necessarily call it a rock song, but once again, when a rock band puts out a song that's not necessarily a rock song, it becomes a rock song. But most people don't realize it actually originated from the Four Lads recording in 1953. Let me tell you a story about that. Sure. I I was playing the They Might Be Giants version, like maybe 90 or 91, at the house I grew up in, and my mom came in, mm-hmm. my mother, who didn't listen to rock and roll radio, like at all, and she starts singing along with the song. And I looked at her, I was like, how do you know this song? And she's like, honey, that song is older than you are. <laughs> Seth, I'm going to tell you something that you must have forgotten. You told that very story on the podcast. Did I you already? Have. And you know okay. what I'm going to do? I'm going to say to any of our listeners, if you can tell me which episode uh, Seth recounted that story and you email it to podcast at rock-u.fr. Let me do that again. Podcast at rock-u.fr. We will send you a Rock U t-shirt wherever in the world you happen to be. Sweet. That's not bad, huh? The first person that sends it The first person who sends it in. Sorry, you're right. Thank you for that caveat because otherwise (laughs) I'd be shipping t-shirts all over the world. (laughs) Yeah, you told that story. I don't remember the context, but you did tell the story before. Uh, We must have been talking about they might be giants or something. Yeah. I think it was an honorable mention somewhere. But yeah, yeah, I remember it. So this is my lazy way of figuring out which episode it is because someone else will have to go listen Somebody to all 35 else will figure episodes. It up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my number three, Istanbul, not Constantinople by They Might Be Giants. What's your number three? So my number three is Russians by Sting. Wow, no. For those of you that don't know this cut, it's on one of his greatest hits records. It's on 10 Summoner's Tales. Uh, I think it's on Dream of the Blue Turtles. Is it? I think it's his first album. I could it be might wrong. have been the first album. I think it's, his first I think it's the album. first album, yeah. yeah. This song is a plea to the United States and the Soviet Union regarding the Cold War nuclear policy of mutually assured destruction between the two countries. Sting explained that the song was inspired by watching Soviet TV via satellite while he was at Columbia University. He said, I had a friend at university who invented a way to steal the satellite signal from Russian TV. We'd had a few beers and climbed this tiny staircase to watch Russian television. At that time of night, we'd only get children's Russian television like their Sesame Street. I was impressed with the care and attention that they gave to their children's programs. 
I regret our current enemies haven't got the same ethics. The music was inspired by Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev's romance theme from the Lieutenant Kijay suite. Hmm. Sting just switched up the rhythm. Mm-hmm. So the start of the song, which features a ticking clock, includes a snippet from the Soviet news program, and I'm going to get this wrong, Vremya, in which the famed Soviet news broadcaster Igor Kirilov says in Russian, the British prime minister described the talks with the head of the delegation, Mikhail Gorbachev, as a constructive, realistic, practical, and friendly exchange of opinions. And that was referring to the meeting of Gorbachev and Margaret Thatcher in 1984. And then layered behind that, you can also hear some communications from the Apollo Soyuz mission. Great song. There's a line in it that says, I hope the Russians love their children too. Sadly, Sting re-recorded an acoustic version of the song in March 22 due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with the proceeds going to humanitarian and medical aid in Ukraine. Sting said, I never thought the song would be relevant again. But in light of one man's bloody and woefully misguided decision to invade a peaceful, unthreatening neighbor, the song is, once again, a plea for our common humanity. Hmm. Classical bass, and then a political song that goes back to the Cold War, which started pre-rock and roll. Sadly, he so. had to bring the song up again. So, All right. Anyway. Ready for my number two? Number two? What I you got? keep waiting to hear bells. Maybe this is the moment. Maybe. My number two song was composed in 1934 by George Gershwin for the 1935 opera Porgy and Bess. No ding. Seth, come on, man. <laughs> it's Summertime. Which most rock fans know from Janis Joplin's version, recorded in 1968. Actually, it's not Janis Joplin, it's Big Brother and the the Holding holding Company. company, She went solo after this recording. It became a jazz standard. Gershwin wrote it. He wanted it to sound like a simple folk tune or a blues tune, so he tried to use a pentatonic scale only to compose, but he couldn't help himself. There's a few notes that he threw in that are a little more sophisticated than a pentatonic scale. Because he's Gershwin. (laughs) Yeah, he's Gershwin. What are you going to do? If you're Gershwin, you're Gershwin. But it was recorded by Sam Cooke, Billie Holiday, Louis Armstrong, and Ella Fitzgerald, many, many others. Uh, Again, it's a jazz standard, but I'm guessing that most rock fans don't realize that and know it from the Janis Joplin or Big Brother and the Holding Company version, which is really good. It's really, you know, it's got nice rock guitar in it. It's got some nice rhythmic, bluesy shuffles on the drums and bass. Recently, I don't know the exact year, I think it was maybe during COVID, so 2020, I like that Lana Del Rey recorded a version that she calls the Gershwin version where she goes back oh, wow. to the original arrangement, sings it as if she's in Porgy and Bess. It's, cool. be- it's a beautiful song. It has, again, deep roots. It's a solid rock canon song. Summertime yeah. by Janis Joplin or Big Brother and Holding Company. That's my number two. So we have run out of chances for me to get to, to win the over-under, which does not surprise me in the slightest. So <laughs> what's your number two song? All right, my number two is When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin. It's a country blues song written and first recorded by Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe McCoy in 1929. The lyrics are about experiences of upheaval caused by the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. That flooding affected 26,000 square miles of the Mississippi Delta. Hundreds of people died and hundreds of thousands of residents were forced to evacuate. When Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe McCoy recorded it, Minnie, who was the more accomplished guitarist of the two, provided the embellishments using a finger-picked style in an open G tuning. Led Zeppelin heard this song, and Robert Plant wanted to do it. 
So he suggested that they record the song after hearing the Memphis Mini and Kansas Joe version. And he used many of the original lyrics. Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones based their parts on the original, but they didn't follow the 12-bar blues form of the original record. They used a modal approach, like one chord, so that the song would have the droning sound that it has. And then John Bonham created the signature drum part, which has a lot of its own mythology behind it about, oh, this is how they got that sound. A lot of people say that because it was recorded in the staircase at Headley Grange, that that's how they got the echo. No, they used an echo rack. <laughs> Interesting, because in the documentary, it might get loud, well, Jimmy Page says they set the drums up in the stairwell. They did set yeah. the drums up okay. in the stairwell, and they did mic them there. Okay, But Glenn but also, Johns, who okay. was the engineer for yeah. the record, was like, no, we, hook, we hooked up an echo <laughs> okay. rack to this interesting, thing. Interesting. Yeah. That's so funny. The drums on this song are ridiculously iconic, and they've been sampled by the Beastie Boys, Eminem, Dr. Dre, and even our old buddy Mike Oldfield. All right. And Sophie B. Hawkins at one point. Wow. And because of all the effects on this recording, Recording, including the reverse echo on the harmonica that's on this song. Yeah. They recorded it with an echo and then they played it backwards so you hear the echo first and then the harmonica. It's really hard to recreate the song in concert. So the band only played it a few times on the early leg of their 1975 US tour. On the album, I mean, Led Zeppelin's not known for crediting people for they their... Have a, they have an issue with that. They had an issue yeah. with that. But the songwriting is credited to Memphis Minnie and the individual members of Led Zeppelin. No idea why Kansas Joe got left out, but at least they at least they admitted, you know, Memphis Minnie was the one who gave him the guitar part. That's my number two when the levee breaks. I'm going to hear your number one. And this is the one, my number one, I think is the one where we're going to have. I think so too, because it's such an obvious choice at this point. All right. What's your number one? House of the Rising Sun. Yes. There it ding, is. Ding, 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 ding. ding. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll do my, I'll do my bit first and then Go clean ahead. up my leftovers. Okay. Yeah. So House of the Rising Sun by the Animals in 1964. Uh, it was first recorded in 1933 as an Appalachian folk song by Clarence, Tom, Ashley, and Gwen Foster. Ashley said he learned it from his grandfather, who learned it before the turn of the century. The lyrics have been published as early as 1905, but it probably goes back to an English folk song as old as the 16th century. We could do a whole sidebar, and in fact, probably should, about Alan Lomax, the folklorist and musicologist who yeah. wandered around the we Appalachians. Should do, we, we should, should do, do a segment on him. Yeah, yeah. So he wandered around the Appalachians in the, I don't I guess, the 30s, I'm guessing. I have to and look recorded. that up, too. Recorded people you know, who lived there singing these songs and created an amazing base of knowledge for folk music. It's been recorded by Woody Guthrie, Lead Belly, Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, Nina Simone, Andy Griffith, and this is a name that probably won't be familiar to too many people, but it was Dave Van Ronk's signature song. And Dave Van Ronk is an influential folk singer in New York as yeah. folk was become, becoming popular, and he to simple, oversimplify, he taught Bob Dylan everything he knows. And, <laughs> and Bob Dylan yeah. kind of stole the song. He knew Van Ronk was planning to record it for his album. Dylan right. did it first. Yeah. You know, again, the rest is history. Everybody knows the name Bob Dylan. Nobody knows the name Dave Van Ronk. Bob Dylan probably still had a bright future. <laughs> yeah, anyway. he probably did. <laughs> the Animals were on tour with Chuck Berry 
1964, and they wanted to play something that sounded different from the, you know, the American rock and roll. So they learned this song, and they got a huge reaction. They decided to record it. They changed the time signature from f- the, the typical 4-4 to a 6-8 time, a waltz time. And there's this A minor arpeggio played by guitarist Hilton Valentine. And this is a rite of passage for many young guitarists. When you learn to play House of the Rising Sun, and, yeah, and you learn that arpeggio. And I remember when I did, I knew the chords. I knew how to sing the song. And a mentor of mine said, why don't you play it this way? And showed me the arpeggio. And I was like, oh, yeah. So, you know, that and Walk Don't Run by the Ventures. And there's a few other songs out there that, yeah. you know, everybody learns. That's one of them. Eric Burden, the vocalist, was channeling like a gritty Newcastle spirit in the song. According to what I read, it took the band only 15 minutes to record this song. I don't know if that's true, but they probably recorded it in, with one mic in one take. So One take. One take, yeah. yeah. Interesting side note, the arranging credit for the song went only to keyboardist Alan Price because, according to Eric mm. Burden, there was insufficient room to name all five band members on the record label. So Alan Price was first alphabetically, because they did alphabetically by first name, which means he got the royalties for the, <laughs> for the hit song, uh. which caused bitterness between the band ever since. It was a huge hit. It's a hugely influential song. It's been called the first true classic rock song. The first British Invasion number one hit that was not by the Beatles. Right. Um, Bob Dylan told the Animals drummer, John Steele, that when he heard the song, he jumped out of his car and pounded on the hood. I don't know if that was frustration or happiness either way. And that this song is what inspired the famous Bob Dylan Goes Electric at the Newport Folk Festival incident. Oh, wow. So that's what he said. Ralph McLean of the BBC called it a revolutionary single, which changed the face of modern music forever. I'm sure you have some more to say about it if I didn't cover everything there. You but. covered a lot of yeah. it. Um, <laughs> it's got a muddy origin story. There's really yeah. no consensus about where the song originated. Some say that the Rising Sun reference is... Oh, yeah, I didn't talk is, about that the song's roots could come from England where the reference could be to a pub or, or a house of ill repute. There are some other people that say it's possibly a reference to Louis XIV of France brought wow. to America by French immigrants. I didn't get I don't, that one. I don't think that that's it. The narrative of the lyrics has ebbed and flowed over the years because the song has its own life. It varies between having male and female narrators Mm -hmm. to where the animals only has the male narrator. And the earliest known printed version of the lyrics is about a woman's warning. It's an amazing song. The Mm -hmm. animal's version is just, it's such a great tune it is yeah it just builds and builds it's just got so much going on with it yeah if you're looking for one song that you can look at and say everything in it is great this Mm -hmm. is one of them (laughs) yeah that's why it was my number one i'm just bummed that it was our only hit because i really really thought we were going to get two but yeah that was one i was pretty confident about so yeah that was the source of my overconfidence All right, so honorable Honorable mentions, mentions. what do you got? All right, well, four that I'd already used. I try not to use songs twice. Yeah. Um, Feeling Good by Muse, which is a cover of a Nina Simone song, which was a cover of a show tune from the 40s. Right. Sweet Home Chicago, which we went into in depth. Yeah. And I think it was episode 32 or 33. Ghost of Tom Joad by Bruce Springsteen and Tom Morello. Which we talked about. Which we talked a lot about, which was a reinterpretation of a Woody Guthrie song. And Louie Louie, which came from a um, Caribbean sailing song or a right. you know not a sea shanty but something you know a, a folk song a few others that are just worth mentioning just quickly mentioning sloop john b by the beach boys which similarly is a sailing song from the yeah. caribbean two other lead belly songs covered by creedence clearwater revival which are i put a spell on you and midnight special could go yeah. deeply into detail about both of those songs but we already covered you know some of that stuff delta blues 
Uh, Scarborough Fair by Simon and Garfunkel, which is another old, old English folk song. Yeah. Tainted Love by Soft Cell, which didn't fit my criteria. It's a cover of a Motown tune from the 60s, which is why I didn't right. use it. Yeah. But it's such a great example of a song that everybody thinks is a rock song, which actually comes from a prior genre. Or the, Motown's not really pre-rock and roll, but it's definitely, this was an early Motown song. So. Right, yeah. And then a few songs just to mention. I didn't, I stayed away from songs with, that had chord progressions lifted from classical music but there are right. a couple ones I wanted to note um, one is Because by the Beatles yep. uh, which John Lennon reputedly asked Yoko Ono to teach him how to play Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven right. and like your story about I think it was two Bueller Bells he just yeah. played the chords in reverse order and yeah. made Because out of that Psycho by Muse which quotes heavily from we've talked about Matt Bellamy and his classical roots Muse a lot Muse quotes a lot yeah. of well Plug In Baby classical music Plug In Baby which I've also used Plug In Baby was quotes to Toccata Infused Exactly. Yeah. And Psycho quotes uh, of all these, the four seasons. And we've talked on this podcast about Stairway to Heaven, which may or may not have a, it sounds a lot like a pre-classical piece actually from the 1700s. So, yeah. And that's, yeah. Jimmy Page has admitted to that. He's like, oh, uh, I didn't it sounds he, like yeah. this madrigal yeah. that he kind of turned he on wasn't, his side. He hasn't admitted to being influenced by it though. No, no, no. Okay. He, I okay. actually listened oh, wow. to a, a recording oh, cool. of him cool. saying, he was like, yeah, I was listening to that yeah. because it's, it's all in the public domain. Right. Well, maybe that's his and way that's, of getting away from <laughs> getting out of his lawsuit. But, well, no, yeah, the lawsuit. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about that before, and Episode, you know that case. Fill in the blank. Yeah, that case uh, went through where you know it's just a line cliche, and yeah. you can't copyright a line cliche. Right. What are so, yours? I had a few. Uh, Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes really? is just Bruckner's Fifth Symphony in a different key and with a different rhythm. Huh. And the question is, did Jack White? Listen to Bruckner's Fifth. Because he's, he's told the story he's and it doesn't got, mention that. Yeah, yeah. And he allegedly did listen to classical music, but maybe sure, he heard not? it. Maybe yeah. maybe he just subconsciously did it that way. Ray Manzarek's keyboard part to the start of Light My Fire was inspired by one of Bach's inventions. Absolutely. And Bach's invention is just a practice piece. And he said, I needed to get to, I think it was A minor. And so he's like, yeah, it's just a box circle of fifths. That happens all the time. And he, you know, said it came from 15 to 20 years of playing practice pieces like box inventions. You talked about Plug In Baby by Muse. Don't Look Back in Anger by Oasis right. is inspired by Paco Bell's canon. One of the D. many, many songs yeah. that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the last one I'm going to throw out is a combination of two of the songs on my list. Okay. Amazing Grace and House of the Rising Sun by a couple of Texas artists, Guy Forsyth and Jessica Bailey. And it combines the two songs using the tune of House of the Rising Sun and the words of both songs. Hmm. And it even includes the verse that was first found in Uncle Tom's Cabin. So I think you can go look that up. Guy Forsyth, F-O-R-S-Y-T-H. Look that up on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. You can find it. If you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety, check out the Spotify playlist that we've got in the show notes to hear them all. All right, kids, we're back. And Matt's going to tell us about how music affects education. I'm going to climb up on my soapbox a little bit here. So hold okay. on a second. Okay, I'm up on top now. 
<laughs> and I'm going to rant. And at the end, Seth, you can talk me down. Okay. Slap I'll me try up. and Slap help me you a out. Bit and I'll, I'll Throw wake some up cold and water say, on yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Where, where, what happened? <laughs> I, I blacked out. Okay. I just wanted to talk about something which people in the Rock U ecosystem hear a lot about, but I think it's worth repeating on this podcast. I want to share with you a guest essay in the New York Times published on September 23rd of this year. So just a couple weeks ago at the time of this recording by Sammy Miller, who's a Graminated. Gram, Graminated. Graminated. Uh, you know what? Let's go with Graminated. There you He's go. He's a Grammy-nominated drummer and music educator. There you go. And the title of the essay is, We're Teaching Music to Kids All Wrong, which is basically what we have been saying at Rock U for 10 years. Okay. Uh, everything, we, everything that most music education represents is not the right way to learn music. I'll start by saying that in the article, Mr. Miller quotes, puts in quotes, the phrase music is a language, but doesn't attribute it to anybody. We attribute it here to Victor Wooten, and we have right. talked about his TED Talk in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I will once again post the link in the show notes of his five-minute TED Talk, Music is a Language, and why we should be teaching music as a language. First of all, the first thing I think people need to know, we teach music by teaching, especially kids, to build skills. Yeah. We say, here's a skill. You need to practice this skill before you can move on to the next skill. And then here's another skill. You need to practice that skill before you can move on to the next skill. And now that you've mastered these two skills, you can move on to the next skill. And you have to practice that skill. That's a terrible way to learn a language. Yeah. Think about that. And You don't learn all the verbs exactly. and then all the nouns. You don't learn to conjugate before you can learn the past tense. You don't right. learn to conjugate the present tense, and then you can start, start talking in the past tense. We learn a language by using it. And I'm going to refer more to Victor Wooten's source material than this article, although the article is very compelling as well. Victor Wooten gives the example of babies. Babies don't talk just to other babies. They talk to adults, which right. is the musical equivalent of jamming with a professional. When babies right. make mistakes, they're not discouraged or corrected. They're encouraged because it's cute and it's fun, <laughs> and you know they're building skills. You learn by doing. Right. You don't learn by practicing. You learn by talking. Music similarly should be learned by playing, not by practicing. If you get to a certain point where you're serious about music, great. Start a practice regimen, set your timer, whatever, schedule your week that you're going to practice this and that and the other thing. But, but that's not how you learn at first. That's not how we learn our first language. Victor Wooten's argument and Sammy Miller's argument is that we should learn music the same way we learn language, at least the first time. And you don't learn it, again, by learning skills, drilling on those skills, then moving to the next skills and drilling on those skills. So I'm just going to pull out a couple excerpts from the article. Again, the article and the video will both be linked. So Victor Wooten, and I'm giving Victor Wooten co-credit for this editorial, even though he didn't write it. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm sorry. The biggest way to do this, by the way, if you're looking for a simple fix, if you're a parent of a young musician, or if you're an adult musician doing this for the first time, and you're figuring, you can't figure out how to do this for yourself, the biggest shortcut to do this right is don't worry about making mistakes. You can't learn without making mistakes. Right. And that's what we tell the kids before every Rock You concert. Everyone makes mistakes. The point of the show is not to not make mistakes. The point of the show is to express yourself. The point of the show is to have fun. Right. And if you do that, you're going to be a better musician. Sammy Miller writes, Most important, we need to let kids be terrible. In fact, we should encourage it. <laughs> They'll be plenty terrible on their own at first. But too often, kids associate music in school with a difficult undertaking they can't hope to master, which leads them to give up. Music does not have to be, and in fact shouldn't be, about the pursuit of perfection. And the great musicians have plenty of lessons to teach students about the usefulness of failure. He goes on to describe the fact that Miles Davis couldn't hit the notes that Dizzy Gillespie could hit when he tried to right. imitate Dizzy Gillespie. 
so he invented a whole new style of jazz. Billie Holiday, and I don't know if this is true, but he claims that Billie Holiday's vocal range was just over an octave, which is pretty shocking for a professional yeah. singer. But Especially he, Billie Holiday. He says, but that didn't stop her from creating the definitive version of so many American classics, so she used what she had. She expressed something within herself using the tools that she had. Right. Tell students these stories and watch them get excited to fail. We should let them do that over and over again. That's the only way they'll learn what sounds awful, but also goes well together, what they like and what kind of music they want to make. He also talks about music as a social experience. And we parents, if we're teaching, you know, if we have kids that we're trying to model this behavior for, we should be right there failing right along with them. We also teach language through immersion. So let's focus on creating an immersive experience in the language of music. Kids learn best when they're part of communities filled with people of all skill levels for them to play along with, listen to music or with, mess up with, and just be silly with. Parents, this means you. Don't let instrument instruction yeah. simply be something you nag your kids to endure. Music was never meant to be a lonely vigil. Play together, make noise together, find joy together, take out an instrument, and learn a song that you and your child both love. He just talks about the benefits, and Victor Wooten talks about this in his TED Talk as well, the benefits of growing up in a family where you're the youngest of a number of siblings who all play instruments and your parents play instruments. Any kid in that environment is going to learn music. Yeah. Nobody has to teach them. They'll learn it. Again, you can always do better. You can always get, get more. You can always work on your craft if you want to. Oh, yeah. There's one other thing that I just wanted to mention, too. I recently said something about this in the Rock You Facebook page, but this is the time of year where a lot of parents, or a lot of kids who are moving to a more challenging level of school are making the decision about whether to, you know, whether they have time to be in a yeah. rock band. Yeah. And I'm just going to quote something I've quoted many times before and from other sources, but here it is. Studies show that students who play an instrument do better in science, English, and math and are more likely to want to attend college. They also may have less anxiety and be more conscientious. They are the kids you want your kids to be friends with. I have never met an adult who is expressly thankful to have quit music as a child, but I've met many who have regrets. So why haven't we, as parents and educators, been better able to encourage our own kids to continue? We need to start rethinking how we teach music from the ground up, both at home and in the classroom. The onus is on parents and educators to raise the next generation of lifelong musicians, not just for music's sake, but to build richer, more vibrant, interpersonal lives for our children and a more beautiful and expressive world. Wow. That's some, power, yeah. that's some powerful stuff. Now, this is what we do at Rock U. We tell the kids to try stuff they've never tried before. Yeah. We encourage them to make mistakes and goof so they can they learn how to get better. That's and, the only way you learn exactly. is making mistakes. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't learn without making mistakes. And if you're afraid to make mistakes, you're never going to progress. And if yep. you are encouraged to make mistakes or if there's no penalty to making mistakes, then you're going to express yourself in ways that maybe haven't been accessible to you before or haven't even, in the case of Miles Davis, haven't even ever been heard in the world before. And yeah. that's what it's about. You learn music much differently and much faster if you do it this way. Um, we've been doing this for a while. And Seth, I'll bring you up as an example. You walked into this room five years ago, four years five ago? Five years ago. Never having played I had the never drums. played drums before. Yeah. Never, and never, never. someone told you, thanks, Andy, someone told you, <laughs> why don't you try the drums? You can do it. <laughs> I wanted to try the drums. And well, Andy said, okay, here's what you're going to do. Yeah, and yeah. he said, right foot on one and That's three, right, yeah. left hand on two and four, and just go at it from there. Andy likes to say, if you can walk, you can play drums. But the, the point is, here's a professional musician telling a student you can do this yeah you've never done it before but you can do this and so, we do that all the time here i have to tell you i had a conversation yesterday with one of the guys in my band and we brought up the experience that we had with andy and andy always had more confidence in us than we had in ourselves we'd say i don't think we can do this song he's like yeah we can you can do this 
Yeah. And he figured out a way for us to do it and actually have the song sound like the song we were covering. It may not have been exact, and we may have made a ton of mistakes, but that was a huge part of my progression as a musician. And the rest of the guys in the band, I think, would say the exact same thing. And I'm sure that uh, you know you can look at where the kids are, or, or the adults, when they start, and then what they do in their concert at the end of the semester. And then if they've been here for a few years, you can go back and look at their concert video from the first one they did to the last one they did and see how far they've come. But that's the Rock You way. Right? It is. That's it the, totally the way. Is. It's not about if the instructor's job is to prevent you from making mistakes, you're not going to be able to do that. If the instructor's no. job is to encourage you to find a way to express yourself the way you want to express yourself with the vocabulary of music that you have, you're going to get better fast. Yeah. The phrase that goes through my head is fail forward. Yeah. You know? Or dare to suck. Dare to suck. Thanks, Peggy, for that one. There you go, Peggy. Seth and I have a favor to ask. If you are enjoying Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast, please do us a solid and go ahead and share it with friends. Also, if you rate and review it on whatever podcasting platform you listen, it will get to other people and that'd be good. We want more people to hear about this stuff that we think is so cool. So share, rate, review, and thank you. All right, kids, we're back, and it's time for the 60 seconds of intellectual insanity. It's the one-minute matchup. Intellectual? (laughs) (laughs) Come on, man. We think about this stuff. we sure do. A little too much, maybe. (laughs) What do you got today? Uh, Our 60-second one-minute matchup is who's more influential, Jimi Hendrix or Eddie Van Halen, in the world of rock and roll? So we're going to go 60 seconds each. And uh, are you going first or am I going first? I do not care. All right. I'm going to let you go first. Okay. So your 60 seconds on this topic starts now. Okay. I'm glad you used the word influential, not better. Um, Yeah. I guess I hate that question. Um, I think it's Jimmy. I'm sorry. Eddie Van Halen is an enormously influential guitarist, but he's definitely a genre-based guitarist in terms of who listened to him, who got inspired by them, by him, and where the influence shows up. It's really in hard rock. Um, he, you know, he he was an innovator in a lot of ways, but he was also uh, someone who's very hard to copy. Jimmy, on the other hand, had a whole bunch of techniques, technical things that he did with his fingers on the guitar, but also the effects that he used, the way he recorded, that influenced pretty much everyone who followed him. It's not that hard to copy Jimi Hendrix once you know how he did what he did. It's very difficult to copy Eddie Van Halen, even if you know how he did what he did. you got to practice for a long time. But you can say, oh, that's how Jimi did it. And you can sound like a little bit like Jimi, at least, if you want to. So Jimi Hendrix has the broader influence and in more ways, technically and um, engineeringly. I don't have the word, which is why I went over my minute. (laughs) I mean both his technique and his technical things is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So, you ready? Uh, all right. So, I think I know where you're going, but let's see. Let's see. Okay. You ready? <laughs> yeah. Your minute starts in three, two, one, go. Okay. Jimmy was incredible. He was before his time, and he influenced a huge number of guitarists. But the only correct answer here is Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> Uh, As I've said before, rock and roll can be divided into before eruption and after eruption. Uh, You know, the way that he played was just unparalleled. The songs that he wrote were extremely influential. And, 
you know, even being able to rewrite Beat It without asking Michael Jackson, and Michael thanked him later saying, thank you for improving my song. Uh, yeah. So then you also have to look at how he influenced the making of guitars and amps and effects in his relentless pursuit of tone. I mean, the guy was a huge tone chaser. He's got three musical patents and his own line of guitars and amps under the EVH brand. He was as influential as Les Paul in the world uh, and Leo Fender in the world of guitar tech. And he was an extremely influential guitarist. Uh, it's just no brainer. EVH. <laughs> All right. We're both a, a hair shade over, over a minute. A minute. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we can continue to, Whoops. to argue for some amount of time. But <laughs> uh, does, does Eddie Van Halen have a chord named after him? <laughs> no, but Jimmy does. <laughs> but when you start talking about tapping and uh, Jimmy tapped too, actually, the there were a lot of people that tapped, but yeah. Eddie was the one that made no, it he, famous. That's probably his. Uh, that's probably the thing that most people think of when they think of Eddie Van Halen's guitar style is the two-handed tapping. Which there's no question he was an innovator. Yeah, but I don't know that it has wide application across rock genres. I really think it's kind of limited to hard rock styles and. Yeah, but he he wrote tons of good songs. The, sure. the sad thing Jimmy is, didn't? the sad thing is <laughs> that Jimmy passed away at such True. an early age. Yeah, you're absolutely and didn't right. Didn't have a full career like yeah. Eddie did and to I, be able to do what he wanted to do, and, and right. it's one of those things where, man, if Jimmy had lived, yeah. What what else would what he else come would he have with? done exactly? Yeah, and I, I think you you make an interesting point about Eddie's patents and his yeah. um, his gear. I think that's also a product of his time. Had Jimi Hendrix been in the eighties instead of the sixties, I, I guarantee you there would have been many companies eager to market that name. Yeah, and sell but a lot Eddie's, of stuff. Eddie's yeah. deal was in the seventies and the eight in the early seventies was he didn't have any money. Right, right. And so he went and figured out how to do all this stuff himself. Well, he was like a self-taught sonic engineer. He was the one that figured yeah. out if I regulate the power to my Marshall amp before it does anything else with it, I can make this other weird sound with it. Yeah. He had all these things <laughs> that were secrets that he kind of held on to before mm-hmm. he decided I'm going to let go of that and make money with this. And yeah. so then other people were able to create the, his sound. I think both of them were musical geniuses well, and, just, and, and amazingly influential in their own way. And I think if, if Jimmy had lived beyond the age of 27, I think I might have a different opinion. See, look at you steering it back to the general before I have a chance to answer your last thing that you said. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is Jimmy, Jimmy did similar, similar stuff. Jimmy's restrung a right-handed guitar. As yeah. a left-handed guitar, and he basically invented a whole new way to play the guitar. Thumb over recording is a Jimi Hendrix trait, and that changes the way you play, where you can play lead and rhythm simultaneously because you can strum a chord, and then your fingers are much more free since you're not borrowing a chord. You're much more free to play uh, riffs and fills in between the chords. Right. That's a Hendrix playing innovation. Today, you can buy a Jimi Hendrix signature guitar, even if you're right-handed, with the headstock upside down so it looks like you're Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. With, so thank you for coming to our 10-minute matchup. <laughs> <laughs> So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? (laughs) Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr.
Extra credit, the Rock You podcast is brought to you with support from our partners at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble Records is your one-stop shop for all music production in Paris. Everything from the composition to the creative side, to the recording and engineering, to the mixing and mastering, to the distribution and publication and publicity. Check them out at www.bigpebblerecords.com. And of course, you will hear lots of Rock You musicians on that label. Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast, is a production of Rock You. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinkley. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock You is a nonprofit association, Loi 1901, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>